0: Henry Nouwen, in his diary entries, wrote this entry, and I just want to read it to you real quick. The Flying Rodleys are a trapeze artist group that perform in the German circus, Stomine Baron. And when the circus came to Freiburg two years ago, my friend Franz and Rani invited me and my father to see the show. And I will, for, I will never forget how enraptured I became when I first saw the Rodleys move through the air, flying and catching as elegant dancers. Gradually, over time, the Rodleys and I became good friends. One day, I was sitting with Rodley, the leader of the troop, in his caravan, talking about flying, and he said, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The public may think that I am the great star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me with split-second precision to grab me out of the air as I come to him in the long jump. How does it work? I asked. I asked. (laughs) do you want to know the secret said rodling the secret is is that the flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything when i fly out to joe i have i must simply focus on this alone i must stretch out my arms and my hands and i must wait for him to catch me and pull me safely over the apron behind the catch bar you do nothing i said surprised nothing Rodley repeated, the worst thing that a flyer can do is to try and catch the catcher. I am not supposed to catch Joe. Joe is supposed to catch me. If I grabbed for Joe's wrists, I might break them or he might break mine. And that would be the end of it. A flyer must fly. The catcher must catch. The flyer must trust with outstretched arms that the catcher will be there. When Rodley said this with so much conviction, the words of Jesus flashed through my mind. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Living and dying is trusting in the catcher. And so to care for the living and to care for the dying is easy. Do not be afraid. Remember that you are the beloved child of God. He will be there when you make your long jump of life. When you make your long jump of death, don't try to grab him. He will grab you. Stretch your arms out, stretch your hands out, and focus on trust, trust, trust. i would probably just end the sermon there. But then it would be Henry Nouwen's sermon and not mine. So here we go. Jesus looks at this group of people that he's talking to. And the world that they live in is a world that has been described by the Roman historian Titus Livius as having grown so much since its humble beginnings that it is now overwhelmed by its own greatness. He didn't make that statement two or three hundred years after Jesus. He actually made that statement about 30 years before Jesus preached this sermon. That at the time and place where Jesus was living, and and we have to remember that that in the place where he was living and working and preaching when he grew up, I mean, we look at the town of Nazareth. Nazareth was not big enough to support a carpentry job. Joseph as a carpenter, he would have had his workshop and everything in Nazareth, but he would have had to travel down to the big towns that were within a day's walk of Nazareth in order to sell his wares, and all of these wares in these towns that he would sell, they were the, the big cultured cities, Tiberius, Chorazin, Sephorus. Those don't sound like Hebrew names because they're not. They were towns that had literally been planted and grown by the Greek and the Roman Empire. After they had taken over Israel, a lot of times we we think of Jesus teaching in Israel, and we think of him teaching in a place that's like far, far away from Rome. But but you have to understand, like their lifestyle and their understanding of of the way of doing things, and their their understanding of what made the good and successful and worthy life, had taken over the mindset of of everyone around him. In fact, that's one of the reasons why the whole province of Judea was such a thorn in the side of everybody, is they they kept. Not believing what everybody else was like, yeah, that's common knowledge. This is what life is supposed to be like. And, you do it, and Judea says, no, this is not what life is supposed to be like. And, and it's in the midst of these things that Jesus says these words to those seeking to follow God and to be his disciples in the midst of the distractions of the empire around them. An empire that had grown so large that it was overwhelmed by its own greatness. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures that are earthly. Treasures that time and treasures that tragedy can erase. Don't fixate yourself on those things. I always thought it was very interesting. This eye is the lamp of the body. And and, and if your eye, if your vision is clear, your whole body will be full of light. And he says, but if your vision becomes clouded, if your vision becomes clouded, then your whole body, your whole self can be compromised. Your whole self can be removed from the light of the way things are and be darkened. If then that light that is within you has become darkened, how all-encompassing in your life will that darkness become? You say, okay, well, what does that have to do with, with, uh, with being the flyer on the trapeze? That was a great analogy. Here's the thing. You can't be the flyer and the catcher in your life. You can't. I can't. We can't. And Jesus says, you you can't serve two masters. You're either going to love one, hate the other, or you're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Okay, we we take that and we say, oh, okay, so Jesus is talking about money. Jesus is not totally talking about money here. Okay, do do any of you have money capitalized in your Bible there? I think uh, probably a few of you do. I hope that you do. Okay, because money should be capitalized in there because he's not talking about a concept; he's naming someone. Or maybe if you've got the older you know versions, you know you cannot serve God and Mammon, and you're like, what is Mammon? Okay, it's the name of a local deity. Okay, widespread across the empire. Okay, goes by various other names, I'm sure. You know, like in 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 in, in India. I took a I took an Asia survey tour with some college students when I was at Abilene Christian. We went by and and we met we 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 got to in, encounter the temple of of Mammon, okay? Known by a different name there, Ganesh. Big fat dude that has the head of an elephant with three trunks. It's very interesting. Okay? And the whole point of the whole point of, of going and offering stuff to Ganesh is that he's the God of security and prosperity, or a god of security and prosperity. And so you leave your offerings of your food and your flowers and stuff like that. And it was very, very interesting because there's this really ornate temple and this really cool statue and everything. And then we go back because they wanted to show us this new library that they had. And they were very excited because it was a new edition and we were like, okay, cool, we're 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 excited to go see this. We we're learning all about you know, Indian culture and everything. We go back and we pass by a storeroom on our way back. And you look in the storeroom and there's replicas of all these, it's, it's replicas of the same statue that we saw outside. And, and somebody goes, hey, I've got a question, what's that for? Completely ignorant question, right? And the answer that we got in essence came back to, well, these are, these are the backups In case something happens to the statue out front. And I was trying to wrap my mind around that. Okay, so this is the backup in case my God breaks. And we can laugh at that, okay, but you have to understand what's going on behind that is that we're not really talking about money and we're not really talking about a deity. Jesus is saying you can't be the flyer and the catcher at the same time. You can't be devoted to self-sacrifice, to to making that long jump of life and even through death and into eternity and stretching out there with all you've got and be devoted to self-preservation at the same time. You can't do that. You can't follow... A Messiah that says, here's the basis for living. You need to take up your cross, an instrument of humiliation, an instrument of, of, of pain, an instrument of suffering, an instrument of excruciating death, okay? And to willingly take that up as a method of self-sacrifice for the sake of trusting God, You cannot put your will on a cross and then also hedge your bets with self-preservation. At the same time, you can't do it. I can't do that. To me, that's the best understanding of of this concept that we're talking about with single-mindedness. Is that I have to have a greater passion for being the one who trusts God to catch me than trying to catch myself. If I can't keep that in front of me, if I can't keep that passion out in the forefront of my mind, ultimately it all comes to nothing. And, and, and we will find ourselves frustrated, complicated, and conflicted in our discipleship. I, uh, and there's so many different places that I could go with this. I mean, one, one place I went with this went with this because of the connections both, I think, at the time that Jesus was talking about in us is, is entertainment. But this really isn't a sermon about entertainment, okay? So bear with me in this for a second. So as it became more clear that, that in Rome, a citizen could literally begin to acquire or experience or achieve whatever they desired, it was becoming evident that that freedom to pursue and accomplish all those things might also carry a terrible burden. And, and, and that was just it, that the, there was a need to maintain that greatness and fulfillment and purpose. Not just a, And that's, that's not just a burden individually, it was a burden for the entire empire, okay? You look at the Roman Empire and in order to keep the level of, of, of affluence and the level of experience that everybody had become accustomed to, they had to build it on the back of like slaves. Why was the, why was the Roman Empire constantly expanding and constantly conquering? Because they, the, they needed the manual labor as grist for the mill to keep the machine running, and pretty soon, that's—I mean, it's, even though it's evident that the system can't keep working that way, we don't know what else to do because it, that's the expectation. We're, this is the direction the train is going. We have to keep going that way. One of their solutions to it was entertainment. Entertainment is a form of pacification. The distracted Roman was a pacified Roman and they weren't worried about purpose anymore because instead they had things to occupy their mind. Okay, and, and, and I mean, this is low-hanging fruit. I could, I could sit here and I could rail on our entertainment habits all day long, okay? And, and that might make a good sermon and it might make you feel a little guilty, but I don't know how much it would change things. Because this isn't a sermon about entertainment choices. This isn't a sermon about, like, the fact that for the 30th anniversary of his execution, Netflix released a series called Conversations with a Killer about Ted Bundy, a guy who murdered 37 people. And I do not want to share with you the numbers of people that have snapped up that documentary within the last few weeks. It's in the millions of people, okay? Oh my gosh, you know, like, and and so it's really easy for us to throw stones thousands of years backward at the Roman Empire and go, oh, gladiatorial games and blood sports, blah, da da. Meanwhile, we're watching taped conversations with a serial killer. Maybe we're not as civilized as we think we are. Maybe Rome's problems are our problems. Maybe, maybe Jesus didn't say this to people thousands of years ago. Maybe he's saying it to us right now. If your eyes are becoming clouded, then your whole body can be filled with darkness. And if that light within you then becomes darkness, how all-encompassing can that darkness become without us even realizing it? But again, it's not about entertainment. It's about why we choose to, it's the deeper choices behind why we do what we do. I think that's what single-mindedness as a concept or, or this, this, this focus and this devotion that we've been singing about and that we've been talking about in class is really about. It's, it's what drives us to make the choices that we do or don't make about our media use or our smartphone use or our gym memberships, or our diet plans, or our wardrobes, or our vacations, or our vocations, or our retirement plans, or our... like I don't know. Fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. What are the things that to you are the markers of the good and successful life? And how do you hold that up against what Jesus says? Even taking into account, if you would come after me you must take up your cross deny yourself and follow me and then on top of that would say the reason that I've come is so that you may have life and have it to the fullest Jesus obviously has a very particular understanding of what life to the full means the abundant life I had a friend after Emery died that, that shared with, with me some of the most profound wisdom. His, you know, he said, look, when I read this and I think about your situation, what I'm coming to realize is that it's not, Jesus didn't tell you I've come that you may have life to the full so that stuff like this would never happen to you. I came so that you could have the abundant and full life so that when stuff like this does happen to you, you are able to experience even grief, even sorrow, even pain, even suffering to the fullness of purpose, to the fullness extent so that you, you don't hide from these emotions and you don't squash them down and you don't redirect them in destructive ways, but that you are actually able to encounter grief as suffering that helps you know Christ more fully? Single-mindedness is whatever the, whatever the situations that are in front of us is, do we approach them and say, who gets to have the biggest voice? In class, this morning we went over the verse, seek first the kingdom of God. It's just just a little ways down here right after Right after everything that we just read this morning, you know, and Jesus talks about don't worry about your life, and he talks about eating and drinking. He talks about talks about food. He talks about clothing. He talks about you know all of all of these things that are that that are you know even basic needs, even self security, but things that then we can turn and grow into, you know, well, how organic and grass fed and dolphin friendly was your steak, and you know, or, or whatever you know, or your pants or, or whatever. I don't know. i would never seen gluten-free pants, but I'm sure they're out there. Okay. But I mean, where, we get, where, where, where that worry and that desire to have purpose and to matter and to have the good life, like it, it starts out as whether you're dealing at the basic need security level or whether you're dealing at the, you know, excessive level, Jesus says, like, all of that must be revolutionized in your life to where you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You seek first in both sequence and priority God's kingdom and God's righteousness and the other things that you are tempted to be distracted by through desire or worry, or anxiety will be aligned under his authority, says Jesus. And then you will actually find that peace and that wholeness and that security that you've been fruitlessly spending yourself on, all of these other things in order to try and acquire that. So much of Jesus' teaching, if you you really go back and you look at everything that comes from the lips of Jesus, so much of it revolves around this very idea, Who gets the biggest and the first say? Who do you actually trust? Who do we actually trust? Whether we have a lot or whether we have a little, who do we actually trust? Whether our life is full of opportunity or whether our life is full of tragedy, who do we actually trust? Whether we are at the beginning stages or whether we are at the ending stages or whether we have no idea where we are because we're middle-aged, who do we trust Who gets the biggest say? Who gets the first say? Because all of the things that I just talked about, okay, none of those things are necessarily evil in and of themselves. Television and media are not inherently evil or inherently good. All these other things, you know, how we spend our physical activity, or how we order and organize our time. Like, I mean, all, all of those things. Think about it. All of those things are about who gets the first and most important vote in those decisions. Me or my creator and my sustainer and my savior and my lord. Who gets that? There's a, there's a Franciscan monk. His name is Richard Rohr. And and he's he has been I've been devouring some of his writings lately as well. And he he put it this way, and I really love this. He says, We have become so preoccupied with constructing the container of our lives that we have altogether lost the plot of how vital it is to know what vital substance that would be God Himself. Is supposed to fill and occupy the container. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first what fills the container. And the God of redemption, the God of creation, the God of salvation, the God of eternity, the God who is bigger than our worries and our anxieties and our pressures and our deadlines and our desires and all of those things, he will actually make the container better. It's kind of what, what you see Jesus saying. First things first. And I think it gets even harder in our world now where... There are so many voices that want to clamor, I, you know, a few weeks back when Steve Whitmer was talking, he was talking about just the the world that Jesus lived in and, and just kind of the hundred little gods that were all there, right? And And, and I talked about it last week with, you know, just how how Caesar had added himself to that whole pantheon, you know, and it was like, well, what's the big deal? You know, we already kind of play this little dance with a hundred little gods. You know, what's, what's burning incense to one more and saying Caesar's Lord, but I don't really mean it, you know. And, and we have those hundred little gods today still. There are so many voices that want to speak with the same authority to us, on, and, 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 and they're clamoring for the same meaning and purpose. So many voices that can speak with some authority into how things work in us and among us and around us. I mean, history, science, technology, psychology, philosophy. There's, there's so many disciplines, right? So many things, so many voices to listen to. But these same voices are not able to give us the answers to why we are. The wise in us, the wise among us, the wise in the universe surrounding us, to make meaning of it all, to give us a trajectory, a place to go with it. And, and whether we're dealing with those at like the big philosophical levels or just the practical day to day rubber meets the road level, Christ asks us to seek a single-mindedness in deciding what is of temporary and what is of eternal value. And to remove the mental and the social and the spiritual barriers that we like to build up in our lives that separate us into our spiritual selves and the rest of my day. And the rest of my week and the rest of my life. I mean, that's really the heart of the two masters concept that Jesus is warning us against, is any attempt for me to compartmentalize my life into this is the section that Jesus gets to have Lord over and this is the section that I'm going to keep kind of safely hidden away and I can manage this piece. I can catch myself on this part. I might need you here, but I've got this. Thanks, Jesus. I'm good. It won't work. It will never work. It will ultimately fail. Time or tragedy will erode it. And so practicing single-mindedness means approaching these daily decisions, small and daily, as well as the big monumental ones, with the same metric. What does it look like to first be subject to God and to his rule? To trust that he will do a better job of providing and of saving than I could ever do on my very best day. These are the questions that have to preoccupy us as disciples. These are the things that stay in the front of our mind as we go about our day. It's not a life removed. It's not a life where we're so focused on heaven that we're of no earthly good, as we mentioned early. It's where we are so focused on seeing things through the lens of God that we are the absolute best at being who God created us to be. Because we know that we're not trying to both fly and catch at the same time. We let God do what God does. And we put our focus on what he's asked us to do. To seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And it comes back to a question of trust. It always does. Not, not just trust in his existence. Not just trust in his presence. Not just trust in his power. But trust in his character. Trust in his integrity. I mean, one of the biggest questions that we've had to ask in our lives as as a family, and one of the biggest questions that I've had to ask individually, is not, does God exist? It's, does he have my best interests in mind? Does he really have my best interests in mind? Because it hasn't always felt like it. In fact, a lot of times it's felt like the opposite. And a passage of scripture that's become so near and dear to me is Isaiah chapter 43. And just hear this, okay? You know, it's another another passage of these exiles that are trying to figure out who they are again. Starting in verse 1. But now this is what the Lord God says. He who created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, O Israel. Do not be afraid. I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. So when you pass through the waters, not if. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the depths, they will not sweep you away. When you walk through the fire, not if, when. You will not be consumed. The flames will not overcome you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom. I gave up Cush and Seba for you. They were the price that I paid to bring you to me. Since you are precious and honor. This, this I love it. Why, are, why can we be single-minded? Why can we trust? Verse 4. You are precious to me. You are valued, you are honored in my sight, and I love you. I don't know how much clearer God can get, okay? This was like the romance movie, that's like the, that's the line where then we say, shut up, you had me at hello or whatever, right? Like, like that's the line. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Single-mindedness at times is just being willing to believe above all else that what God says right there has more authority than my current experience. That that means more. And that, I'm, that's not easy. I'm, that's not easy. Sometimes it's just grasping that with both hands and hanging on. But single-mindedness is that too. But as comforting as that is, that's not even the the fullness of of what's here. Keep going with me in 43, and I just want you to see one more thing here, okay? We're going to wrap up on this. Go down to verse 16. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, who split the waters open and created a path for you who drew out the chariots and the horses and the armies and the reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Okay, like, what's he talking about? He's telling the Exodus story, right? He's like, when you were at your worst, and when all hope was lost, I'm the one who split the waters open, put the fiery whirlwind between you and danger, and you walked through on dry land, and when the chariots were bearing down on you, I buried them in the ocean. And they never came out again. Remember that? That's part of who you are. That's, that's the fundamental thing of who you are. Is you're one whom I love and I cherish and I have saved. And then he says, forget about it. What? Forget about it. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it even springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a new way in the desert. I am making streams of water in the wasteland. The wild animals will honor me as they drink, the jackals and the owls, because I am providing water for them in the desert, streams in the wasteland, to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I form for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. We can lose the plot in suffering. We can be distracted by pain and loss, but there's an even more subtle distraction. The wistful memory of the past that dulls our senses to the present and, more importantly, the future. I mean, to be sure, we can be shackled and imprisoned by the regret and the trauma of a painful history, but you know what else we can be imprisoned by? The good old days the way things were when things were better. Single-mindedness toward Christ is more than just a pure and holy passion toward his character or his way of life. It is an uncompromising dedication to Christ's direction. Single-mindedness is not static. It's not stodgy. It's not narrow-minded. It's it's, it's quite the opposite, actually. Single-mindedness is this fixation on who Christ is and where he's going. As Hebrews says, he's the pioneer that's out in front of us that's blazing the path of salvation, and we keep our eyes fixed on him while we run. I mean, as followers of Jesus more than anything else, we've got to realize that part of the single-mindedness is we are not defined by where we've been And we are not defined by where we are. We are defined by where we are going. And that is not a far-off hope that stays way out there and is disconnected from now. That where we are going defines everything about the decisions that we make now. Everything about the way that we live our lives today. It has to. Paul put it this way in Philippians. I'm not there yet. He says, but this thing I do know. The past stays where the past is and I keep pushing toward the prize. I keep pushing toward the goal, which is Christ and everything that he called me for. It comes right on the heels of I want to know him. And if that means knowing his sufferings, if that means even becoming like him in his death in order to taste the resurrection, I will do it. Lord, give us that passion. Give us that focus to press on into Jesus more fully. Let's pray. God, please help us through prayer, through your word. Through worship, through communion, through community with others, through nature, through all the ways that you speak to us, God, remind us, please, that there is only one Lord, that there is only one salvation. that I can't really reach out there for you and also be worried about preserving myself. I really can't make that long jump into life and into your arms and then be worried about whether or not you're going to catch me. I can't. It's not going to work. Please help us, Father. It is hard amidst the voices that are all around us for us to have the focus to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. But please Lord, give it to us day by day. Give us the passion and give us the reality that without you, anything that we experience is going to be pale and poor and ultimately empty. It will not last. And so lead us on, help us to run after you father with perseverance and with a great amount of joy, Lord, even when it's hard because you're worth it, because you love us. Amen.